A lot that Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban Viktor Orban Viktor Orban Viktor Orban Legislation which fundamentally suspends democracy The European Union's first dictatorship As Orban tightens his grip on power and the Hungarian parliament goes into lockdown are we seeing the rise of a new European dictatorship? Welcome to the Moose and Spade podcast. Nineteen eighty-nine, Budapest. Viktor Orban gives a speech in Heroes Square on the anniversary of the nineteen fifty-six Hungarian Revolution. He's demanding free elections and the withdrawal of Soviet troops. His incendiary words catapulting him and his movement for debts onto the national stage. When he made his address that day in Heroes Square, he was talking to nearly a quarter of a million people at the age of only 25, heading a movement he had only recently created with his university friend and roommate, Gabor Fadol. We were roommates with Mr. Viktor Orban, so we were very close friendship. And uh, we tried to do something against uh, this communist regime as students. So we were full of nice ideas, full of hopes. Both Fedor and Orban believed the communist regime was nearing its end. And as the Soviet leader Gorbachev introduced a series of economic and democratic reforms, these university roommates stood as committed liberals on the brink of leadership in a new age of democracy. But the atmosphere of repression remained, and people were taking a risk in supporting the radical message of these two friends. So Orban and Fedor had to think carefully about forming a loyal and committed base of supporters. And we said, OK, we try to destroy this regime. And we know that's a very dangerous way, and that's a great risk in in our life. As they put this radical message to the people in their first public meeting in 1988, Orban and Fedor announced halfway through the meeting that there was going to be a short break. During this, most people left, but 38 remained. The 38 that formed the new base of the new political movement, Fidesz. This new group, proclaiming their belief in pluralism, democracy and a market economy, were winning seats as early as the 1990 general election, when 20 members were elected to parliament. Their campaign song was Listen to Your Heart, the hit song by Swedish band Roxette. We were very popular as the rock stars, we were absolutely. So when we made some demonstrations, there is a common thousands of people. This was a promising start for a party led mostly by students, but the collapse of social welfare in Hungary and a worsening of real living standards meant the sort of economic liberalism championed by Orban and Fedor became less attractive. So uh, in the mid-90s, Orban decided uh, very rapidly to transform it into a right-wing, nationalist, kind of Christian democratic-oriented party. As Fidesz moved to the nationalist right, it became increasingly clear that Orban and Fedor took a very different approach to politics 
tensions between the two quickly surfaced. Mr. Orban want to fight every time. He need enemies every time. He need enemies. And myself, I'm absolutely different. I think we have to understand each other and not to fight every time. We've heard how Orban, with his roommate, started a new movement at the collapse of the Soviet Union and how he increasingly took control of this party, moving it to the nationalist right. But even despite how far he took his party, he still espoused the ideals of pluralism and democracy, human rights and a free press. Many of the things critics would say have been eroded in the last few years of his leadership. So what happened? How did this pragmatic politician turn into, as his critics would argue, the nativist strongman he is today, exploiting xenophobia and resentment to his own political ends. Uh, from the mid-90s to the to 2015, we can say, it was just an ordinary right-wing turn authoritarian party. Uh, when, the, when the refugee crisis appeared in 2015, it also became fiercely and anti-migration, uh, anti-Muslim, xenophobic, racist. And alongside accusations of prejudice and xenophobia, what has received particular international condemnation and what some find particularly troubling, reflective of something out of Orwell's 1984, is the leveraging of conspiracy theories to scapegoat particular figures for national and international crises. The Hungarian government has been claiming and is indeed still claiming that um, the, uh, uh, the arrival of migrants and asylum-seeking refugees to Europe is not um, sort of a, a natural occurrence due to, due to wars and, uh, and, in, and, and global poverty, etc. It's, it's uh, somehow a scheme organized by one single individual, George Soros. Um, who is uh, Hungarian by birth, um, uh, but now also a U.S. citizen. So they've been claiming for the past, for, well, basically since um, the end of 2015, that he's somehow been, been organizing all of this. And they've used that as an excuse to attack NGOs working both to, to, to promote the respect of democracy and, and human rights, investigating the government for abuse, but also uh, protecting asylum seekers' rights. They've, they've used this to clamp down on NGOs. Um, they also use this to attack and eventually actually drive out the, um, uh, the private university CEU, the Central European University, from Budapest. Uh, it re relocated last year to uh, Vienna instead. It was forced to due to a law that singled out the CEU and kept it from from continuing to exist in Hungary. Uh, so this, uh, they, they also made this, this extremely, I mean, um, 
uh, a conspiracy-minded, uh, the, the spreading these conspiracy theories about how there's this uh, hidden agenda scheme by Brussels and by Soros and by by liberals and, and left-wing politicians. It's also a big conspiracy. But these conspiracy theories, perhaps even these attacks on NGOs and different forms of opposition, would be less dangerous, less persuasive, if the government didn't effectively have control of large swathes of the media. Critics argue that this control has been asserted not as one big sweeping change, but rather by piecemeal, by gradual erosion of press freedoms. Everywhere the story is the same. Reports tell of the government effectively coordinating media output. One report from Dan Nolan of Al Jazeera talked to whistleblowers inside state media network MTVA, who described a quote, fake news factory, and how the government worked to create 24-hour coverage of quote, migration, migration, Soros, Soros, a new baby panda was born at the zoo. But one of the most recent incidents was the closure of the main opposition newspaper, Nepsabadzag. This past week, when one of Hungary's biggest opposition newspapers, Nebsabadzag, closed down. About 2,000 Hungarians have protested outside Parliament in Budapest, saying press freedom is under threat. The details were murky. The owners of Nebsabadzag blame financial losses, but civil rights groups believe it's been shut down because of its criticism of right-wing Prime Minister Viktor Orban's government. In the week prior to its demise, it published exposés on corruption within Orban's political circles. It also criticized the government over a referendum held earlier this month on the issue of Hungary, refugees and the European Union. Two years after the closure of Nebsabadzag, another opposition paper closed. This time, Magya Nebset, deprived of government advertising after the owner fell out with Orban. According to critics, Orban, using his cronies, many of whom hold significant stakes in media outlets, has, to all intents and purposes, captured the media and the means by which people receive their information. This following a process which first really took hold in 2010, when people protested legislation to, among other things, create a new press regulator with more extensive powers, has been condemned by the European Union, of which Hungary is a member. But is there really anything the EU can do about it? A fundamental um, problem with the EU is that you do have, as 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 a state that wishes to enter the EU, you have to um, you have to to somehow prove that you you've been able to uh, to climb this enormous mountain of obstacles. We, we have to you have to prove that you are democracy by a lot of different standards and criteria uh, to be able to become an uh, a member state of the EU. But once you are a member state, in in reality, the European Union doesn't really have a lot of tools to use if a member state starts to backtrack on democracy. Now, if a, if a member state starts to, uh, to leave democratic principles, this, this, in reality, there's only uh, just very few tools they can use um, apart from, from protesting. And this has been the case with, with Hungary. And Hungary was the first country where a, a right-wing 
authoritarian party came to power on itself with the political power to implement its agenda. It's the first time it happened in Hungary. Uh, and the EU has been unable to intervene, opening up for more parties to follow in Orban's footsteps. And this has now been the case for the past four and a half years in Poland. In other words, the EU have criticised Orban, but action-wise, there's nothing they can really do. The fact is that through installing government loyalists on the press regulator, through intimidation and interference in the media, Fidesz has created a coherent narrative, framing the protagonist, the protector of the people, the current ruler, against the antagonists, the liberals, the Muslims, George Soros, immigrants who ostensibly threaten the fabric of Hungarian society. But in a way, this idea of shaping a narrative is something that every political force does in every country. I'm thinking of Alistair Campbell as the spin doctor for New Labour. And of course, the current government employs their own media strategies for shaping public discourse. The difference, though, between the media strategies used by the current Conservative and previous Labour governments and Fidesz is that the latter is more crude, more authoritarian. It uses intimidation and cronyism to crush opposition rather than positively and subtly change perception. Whereas Dominic Cummings might try to influence the media narrative, Fidesz has created an entirely new reality. And it's this strategy, made possible only with near-complete control over information, that allows Orban to evade scrutiny. Another important aspect of Orban's leadership worth mentioning has been his ability to exploit crises, most notably now, of course, but also during the migrant crisis five years ago. The migration crisis of, of 2015 has changed the game and it has uh, increased the politicisation of immigration as an issue which wasn't an issue for, for populists uh, in this part of the world before and it has allowed them to weaponize uh, Euroscepticism Euro and Im immigration in the same kind of cocktail as to mix in with kind of anti-establishment politics that they, they have they've fostered at home and ha they now have an external agent to focus that. The great danger with, with, with Hungary and Orban, the Hungarian government and Orban, is that he's created sort of a, a handbook on how to dismantle democracy in a smooth way, in a way that you don't really get these uprisings uh, on the streets. It's, it's done in a very smooth way that you can, you can point out enemies, you can point out a crisis situation as of 2015 or as of now to justify your, your policies. And, and this sort of um, creates this, this political apathy among uh, uh, the opposition as well as voters um, not supporting Orban. And so we return at last to the new statutes passed on the 30th of March, which gives Orban the most sweeping powers of any European leader. As the last 10 years have seen the weakening of democracy, the erosion of democratic norms, this is arguably the most significant event in Hungary's transition from liberal to illiberal democracy and even authoritarianism. These new powers totally unprecedented since the fall of the Soviet Union, 
allow the government to put people in jail for up to five years for spreading, quote, distorted truths on the virus. What counts as distorted truths, of course, is totally up to what the government says. And of course, this statute allows the Prime Minister to override all existing legislation or indeed create new legislation without consulting Parliament. And the other part of the law that has people worried is a fine or prison sentence for journalists or others who are accused of somehow disrupting the government's health plans. So there's an illusion that it's about spreading false information, but it seems to be a little bit different than that, kind of disrupting the carrying out of the battle against the pandemic. And of course, that can mean anything. I mean, if you criticize the government, if you say, I don't know, there aren't enough face masks, maybe that counts as disrupting the government's plans. And so there's a huge avenue, both for simply just intimidation of people, of healthcare workers and also of journalists has been opened, plus this enormous loophole that allows the government to essentially do anything without having to consult or have any public argument about it at all. Orban has already started to use these new powers to cut funding that goes to opposition political parties. What he'll do next, no one can be sure. Some think he'll be relatively cautious, since the EU, if pushed far enough, could theoretically prevent Orban from receiving EU financial aid. Whether or not he is cautious, though, the thing that worries critics most about this bill is that there's no sunset clause. The suspension of Parliament will continue as long as Orban wants. Finally, in spite of the attacks on the freedom of the opposition, the freedom of the press, it is still possible to sensationalise what's been going on in Hungary. A Washington Post article claimed that democracy had been, quote, killed, whilst the German press referred to the Enabling Act, the similarly named act that granted Hitler total power after the Reichstag fire in 1933. Now, don't get me wrong, it is certainly true that democratic norms have been attacked and undermined, but as the political journal Jacobin points out, Hungary is less of a true dictatorship and more an illiberal democracy, a hybrid regime, a democracy in regression. Where it is, though, perhaps harder to sensationalise, to exaggerate, is what Orbán's actions mean for the European Union as a whole. As Gideon Rackman in the Financial Times argues, recent events indicate that, and I quote, the EU's instruments for keeping errant members in check are inadequate. Trying to use Article 7, the article through which members can be removed, won't work because Poland will veto it. The EU can't, in response to Orbán's authoritarian measures, refuse to provide Hungary with funds because there's no legal mechanism through which they can unilaterally do that. President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, may meekly refer to the EU's fundamental principles and values as governments respond to lockdown, but is that enough? As Trump embraces the Hungarian Prime Minister, who also has an ally in Vladimir Putin, populists are exploiting this crisis to their own ends, and the strains are showing. The world after this crisis could be very different to the one before. Listen to 
Thank you very much for listening to the first episode of Moose and Spade. If you liked it, please share this episode on social media and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use.